0: Here we go. So there's a kind of a myth that to become an advanced spiritual practitioner uh, is to get to a place in life where we can bear being around the most unskillful people without it having any effect, <laughs> and that somehow we should be able to uh, be with, um, encounter, uh, interact with uh, dullards of every shape and, <coughs> and characteristic, um, and even the most cursory perusal of the Buddha's teachings reveals a man that certainly did not labor under that delusion. The Buddha's core texts over and over and over again talk about be careful who you hang out with. And he had a whole word for people that are... He basically grouped people into... The run-of-the-mill, which he would happily instruct and happily interact with and try to instill spiritual practices. He taught a lot of householders and lay practitioners. And then there were the stream-enders, which were monastics and other people that had really had advanced practices. But there was also some people who he called belavaga, Vaga, which were just basically... Uh, to use the spiritual term, pain in the fucking asses. That and the Buddha, if you, there's a bunch of uh, texts where the Buddha basically says, "Listen, you're not worth the effort." And he would, he would take, uh, he would go uh, to no short efforts to, uh, to basically. Uh, establish a safe space, and to ward off people that were needlessly uh, creating stress and suffering where they went. And, um, in fact, the first two or three groups of suttas, uh, uh in the... Uh, the Dhammapada are about that. So it's a very important topic. Now in life, though, we can't often... Sometimes we're stuck, aren't we? We might work with them. They might be our roommate. (laughs) Uh, You might sit on the train next to them. Or uh, sometimes we just can't get away. So um, tonight's topic is, is dealing with emotion contagion, which means uh, what can happen when we are stuck with people who are stressed out, worried, anxious, constantly activated, and how there's this tendency for us to uh, pick up their stress. The Buddha talked about how, um, in some of the numbered discourses he talks about, how we literally wind up acting and behaving like the people that we're around. And um, Which is why he cautioned so often, in the, especially the teachings to regular everyday practitioners, to, to be mindful of the characteristics of those that we're around. So in order to discuss this, I'm going to take a step back and I'm going to talk a little bit about emotions because we have to understand what emotions are and, and uh, empathy and stuff like that. And then we'll talk about emotion contagion and how to deal with it. So, um, there's this myth that's propagated in Western culture, the I like to call the Spock myth, that if only we didn't have emotions, if we were always logical and rational, that we could lead perfectly wonderful lives, and it's that our emotions are somehow um, uh, things that we're stuck with, but that they don't really help us. If anything, they kind of get in the way. Or maybe they're only useful in relationships, romantic relationships. But uh, actually, the emotional mind is essential. It's the way that you develop security with other people. When you're activated by any of the fight, flight, freeze, or the mechanisms that keep you uh, engaged to find food to find shelter, to find somebody to uh, uh, have sex with, anything like that that's engaged, the, the body becomes activated, the mind becomes activated with what's known as readiness potential. You're ready to act. The muscles engage the blood, pressure changes, the heart rate changes, we release cortisol... All of this is being activated by preconscious elements of the of the brain. So you're in an activated state, and the feeling of that is called feelings. The Buddha called it vedana. It's basically that state of being activated, of being ready to do something. We might be frightened, threatened. We might be excited, and the whole body goes into a different state. Now, when we're activated, uh, we have a second set of uh, events that occur, which are emotions. Your emotions are actually messages, signals that you are sending both to the conscious mind, your conscious mind, and to other people, saying, I'm activated. <laughs> not literally, I mean, it's not saying, hey, buddy, I'm activated, but it's, you're, it's basically saying, hey, something's going on. And the way we do this is we literally create a very visual change in the front of the body, our facial muscles change, the tone of voice, the position of the body becomes different, the various different muscles contract, we go into a uh, a fully visual emotional state, and the reason we, uh, we do this is because we're trying to signal to the people around us, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm... Feeling something, I'm either threatened or I'm excited or I'm in craving for food or whatever. You're signaling. And the way we get deactivated or the way we become regulated emotionally is when other people see this change, this emotional change, the change in facial expression, tone, body language, the way our eyes move about, everything about us changes and other people unconsciously read this and they can basically what's known as mirror us, which means reflect back the emotional state we're in and let us know if we're at an appropriate amount or at too little or too much. So say you're in a new relationship, you're very excited, you call up, Uh, your friend and if it's a friend that's very attuned with you that's a satisfying relationship you're like hey I just found him, her, it's I found somebody and I'm really excited and this is great and then the other person on the phone hopefully goes oh that's wonderful in a way that regulates your emotions that that lets you know you're just right (laughs) If you're a little bit too excited, yes, I've solved it all. This is it. I can quit my work. I've been rescued. <laughs> then hopefully they mo- they'll, they'll 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 tamp you down a little bit. But, oh, that's nice. That's that's wonderful. Um, but how about this other thing in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's emotionally being decharged. On the other hand. If we're flatline, if we say, I just got into a new relationship, hopefully your friend will go, oh, that's really great. A little enthusiasm here, please. (laughs) So we're constantly reaching out to other people, looking for people to either regulate our emotions or to deactivate us if we're needlessly in fear, needlessly worked up. So every conversation you've ever had in your entire life has got... Two conversations going on at the same time. The one you're aware of, how's it, how's it going there, Fred? Busy? Yeah, it's busy. What's up to this week and feel like grabbing a few beers? Yeah, that would be great. You want to go to the bar? That would be great. We'll do that. I don't know where any of this is coming from, but I'm just kidding. So that's, that's the left hemisphere, the mind that you're aware of, and that's the content Conversation of which you are aware of. But there's another conversation going on beneath there where the two people are going, do you like me? Do you still like me? Are we still securely connected?
1: <laughs> yes,
0: we are still securely connected. I'm attuned to you and I'm mirroring your emotions and I feel that you're a safe place for me to go to have my emotional content registered and tapered down. <laughs> Thankfully, we don't actually have that conversation by now. That's what's going on unconsciously. And so unsatisfying conversations are when we go to somebody in a charged state and we want to be mirrored, but they are uh, uh, inattentive. And that gives a feeling of abandonment. Because when somebody's not there to mirror us, to receive our emotions, we feel um, deeply, deeply... Uh, one, abandoned, and two, we're stuck with our the activated state. If we're frightened and nobody's there to receive the fear, we can remain frightened. We can remain charged up. We remain activated. And if we don't have enough people in our life that are secure, we can go into chronic stress because we can constantly... Uh, activate ourselves, constantly not feel safe in reporting our anxiety, our worries, our concerns. We we might wall ourselves off to other people or have had so many emotionally uh, unsatisfying relationships that we don't have anybody that we feel safe with. So we remain charged up. And this is a very dire state of affairs. So uh, it's very important to be able to have secure, attuned, attuned means locked in, relationships with others. And the key part that allows us to feel safe and allows us to relate to our emotions is um, when somebody mirrors us. And when somebody mirrors us, what they do unconsciously is they feel a little bit of what we feel. That's called empathy. So if I go to you and I'm feeling excited and you go, Oh, excitement. That's great. I'm so glad to hear that you are excited. Like Siri, you know, on a iPhone. (laughs) That's not emotionally satisfying. I can tell that you you might understand what excitement is, but you're not feeling it. You're not getting it. What I need to feel mirrored, to feel securely attached, is to get a sense that you can feel a little bit of what I'm feeling, which is why we have things called any guesses? Furniture. What? Furniture? What? Is Furniture? Furniture? <laughs> Friendships. What? Friendship. Furniture? Friendships. Friendships. Yes. But what part of the brain makes this happen, do you think? <laughs>
1: nope, not this case. <laughs> <laughs> Alright,
0: here we go. Mirror neurons. When you feel something I, if I have mirror neurons, which means I'm not a sociopath, hopefully, that means I feel it too. People who have um, uh, degrees of uh, Asperger's, um, other conditions have a depletion of mirror neurons, which makes it difficult for them to emotionally attune or get other people. In the worst case scenario, you might have a sociopath, which is someone who has absolutely no mirror neurons hooked up. Um, And this can be a result of both genetics, though a lot of uh, damage to the mirror neurons comes about through trauma in early childhood. It's one of the possible outcomes. So anyway, when you go to me and you're excited I see the excitement in your body language, your face, all of this is implicit, by which I mean unconscious, we're not aware of it. I begin to feel the excitement, I begin to recreate it in my own body to an extent, and then I can empathize with your state and then I can mirror it back to you. I can get excited too in my voice. I can mirror the excitement that you feel or the fear that you feel, the sadness that you feel. If you go through grieving, you've lost someone, I can feel a little bit of it, and I can mirror that sadness back to you so that you feel received, and thus the intensity of the emotion is deactivated. So that's why it's so important to have empathy. That's why empathy is listed in the four Brahma Viharas as the Buddha listed as the key ways that we relate to others, not just through kindness, not just through uh, balance, not just through appreciation of their joys and happiness, but through empathy, being able to feel each other's emotional states to understand. But this brings up a very, very important uh, realization, which or a process, which is that empathy makes us vulnerable to emotion contagion. Being able to feel somebody else's stress, somebody else's sadness, somebody else's pain, somebody else's um, emotional states makes us vulnerable to not only feel them, to create them in our own bodies, but then when we physically recreate what other people are feeling because of our mirror genes, what happens is there is something called mood congruence, which we go into the mood and then we start having the same types of thoughts. So, unconsciously, if I'm around all day long somebody who's really (coughs) frightened or really worked up, I might not have anything in my life that I should be frightened or worked up about at that moment, but if I hang out enough with somebody who's really keyed up, if I'm not aware, I will start mirroring their their um, their body state. I'll start getting tense and tight. I'll start breathing quickly and rapidly like they do. I'll go into a similar mirrored mood of anxiety. And then, because of the mind's tendency to create thoughts that follow our body, and mood states, I'll start thinking anxious thoughts. So even though I went into that conversation with them feeling happy and carefree, or whatever state I was in, after a while, I can literally go through an entire change, which is called emotion contagion. There's a whole field of study about it. There's experts in it. And a couple of things they determine is that, number one... We are the most vulnerable to negative, fear-based emotions. We're not that vulnerable to picking up happiness, joy, happy, happy, joy, joy. If you like Ren and Stimpy, which I did. <laughs> we're not that. Uh, we're not that uh, attuned to pick that up. We can pick it up a little bit, but if you're around somebody who's really stressed, really, really, uh, really activated, it can be a very great uh, possibility that we will basically succumb to that mood ourselves. Why is this? Because um, the mind is set up to register anything that's a fear message. And there's nothing like a fear or a survival message or a security message like seeing that somebody around you is panicked. From our days in the tribes back 50,000 years ago, if one of your fellow tribes people, Fred, was uh, was bent out of shape and worked up, it probably was some information that you needed to know about too. You know, he heard that there was like a, a... rampaging set of wild boars heading in this direction. He's a little bent out of shape. It's good that you picked that up. <laughs> you don't want to be the guy who's happy-go-lucky. You know, I don't know why these people are freaked out. I'm perfectly happy. I just, you know, had a very delicious water buffalo for dinner and... and. Uh, I don't know why these people are walking around, you know, all bent out of shape, agitated. And it's good that we have this from from the early survival standards. But the problem is today that there's so many more stressors for us that we can be around people who are almost permanently stressed out. Every time they do... Uh, analysis of the levels of cortisol in human beings, and they've been doing it for the last 40 years, I think. Uh, every year it goes up. And when they do skeletal analysis from uh, fossils, they find only trace amounts of cortisol, which is the stress hormone. But in us, we're coursing with it. Why is this? Well, because we have so many triggers today. We have um, we have to maintain financial security, social interactions, emotional security. We have family interactions. We have all these levels of, of things that we monitor to feel good. We have to worry about, it. am I exercising? Am I eating right? You know, all this stuff, right? So we're, there's the potential of being triggered all the time is available. And so there's a very uh, great likelihood that throughout the course of the day, you're going to encounter a lot of stress. A lot of people who are activated. So just as a human being, we are very, very attuned to that. The the fusiform gyrus, which is the part of your brain that registers facial expressions, it will forget happy looks, it will forget neutral looks, it will forget thoughtful looks. But you show somebody an image of somebody who's terrified, and weeks later they'll be able to point out that person because we're so attuned to believing that fear, stress, uh, discomfort is something is carrying a very important message for us. So, the key is to develop tools that will help us be empathetic which means be able to feel what people around us are feeling, attune, you know, stay compassionate, stay engaged, stay locked in with them, but at the same time not have these moods that they're in completely flood us to the point where we are now in a state of fear. There's, in um, attachment theory, they talk about the ideal caretaker is one that mirrors back to the infant its fear or its, its frustration, but at the same time also mirrors back to the infant, I'm okay. I can feel that you're suffering. I can feel that you're frightened. I can feel that you're, you're uh, anxious. I can feel that you're uh, uncomfortable. But I'm okay, so I can take care of it. That's the ideal state. And we want to attain that state as friends as well. We don't want to go into a state of what can sometimes happen to parents when they're new is if their baby cries, they get all bent out of shape, and then the baby can't be um, uh, emotionally regulated because the, the, the caretaker's hysterical as well. And so what we need to do is to have an awareness that is larger than what we mirror so that we can be both compassionate and and available and satisfying to our the people that we care about but at the same time not be pulled into or down into the pits <laughs> that they might be in so and it's interesting that the people who do studies on emotion contagion find that there's entire workplaces and industries that have emotional climates. I love that phrase, emotional climates. And some industries are just set for stress. Just set up for stress. <laughs> Apparently, real estate is very high in the subfigure, <laughs> figure but very competitive, I gather. People are buying, real estate agents are vying for... The same, you know, things are constantly, you know, worried about stuff, I guess. I, I don't know anything about this, so, but apparently entire jobs <laughs> can make you stressed out. Entire families can have emotional climates. You ever be around, like, some couples that are just serious and sort of, we don't do silly
1: we find silly to be dysphoric
0: and uncomfortable we like it when we're kind of suspicious and (laughs) judgmental so you know people can bring each other down into that that's that you know we can really pull each other into emotional ruts so uh, the real gold Standard of being a human being is to have the entire emotional palette available to you, to feel everything, to not feel any of your emotions are wrong, to be able to feel them, to create a safe container in your body so that you can feel your emotional states and then go get those emotional states mirrored by people who are caring, who can basically make you feel okay with whatever you're feeling without shunning, blaming, rejecting, avoiding you or at the same time trying to fix you and get rid of, rid of your feelings, your emotions. That's the gold standard. Not going to happen. I'm just telling you what it would look like. <laughs> anyway, so we are in a world of other people who are stressed out, so what do we do about it? Here's the part where you get your five-point bulletin, and everything you heard before you can forget. So, um, the first is, when you, the first key is to know when you are in a situation or with a person who tends to, that you are emotionally vulnerable to. Some people you won't be emotionally vulnerable to. Some people you are guarded around, you don't, uh, you don't empathize with them easily, you don't attune to their emotions, so uh, you won't pick up what they're feeling. So you don't have to worry about that. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. Nobody is emotionally available 100% of the time. So there are people with whom we are naturally, emotionally vulnerable to being, you know, to, to their moods. And there are people who we aren't. So, and there are people who trigger us as well and people who don't. There's certain people that remind us of, you know, your mother, your father, your first relationship, your most horrible relationship. The people who remind you of those, they'll probably trigger you. So, um, we have people with whom we are vulnerable, and to know that, to know the situations and people that trigger us, so that when we go into those situations, we can begin to do the work. So, what does the work look like? One, when we are picking up somebody's emotional states, we go into what's known as a startle reflex, which is we become tight, the stomach becomes tight. Jaw, shoulders, everything locks up. We begin to sort of bend forward into almost like a fetal type position. Uh, there's a, a tensing of the the muscles in the front of the body. So, you, if during a conversation with somebody who's really worked up, or somebody you know has a has a a way of uh, uh, becoming. Uh, of being so agitated, you pick up some of that agitation. Just scan these areas of the body while you're talking, while you're there. You can do both at the same time. They won't know you're doing it. Just relax the front of the body, the stomach, the chest, the shoulders. Release the shoulders down, the jaw. If you are not in a physically stressed out position, you can still mirror them, but you will not go into the entire mood that they're in. So this is the most effective mechanism, keeping your body relaxed. If you do that one thing while you're talking with somebody who's, who's constantly worked up, frightened, agitated, living in doomsday, i.e. you work in advertising, then um, you will be able to, uh, you will be, able to uh, be much more... Uh, you'll build up your emotional immune system. There's a phrase you won't hear again today. Um, the second is afterwards, do the same. If you really find it difficult to relax the stomach, the chest, the shoulders, and I can't envision why that would be the case, but another way would be to simply really elongate the outbreaths when you breathe. Just make sure that your breaths, your out breaths, are very long. This will have the same effect because breathing out long trips uh, regions of the brain that release serotonin and calm you down. So the longer your out-breaths, that's another way. If you can't relax your body, relax the out-breaths. Make them as long as possible. Don't worry about your in-breaths. You will bring in as much oxygen as you need. I guarantee you, you haven't suffocated yet, so you'll be okay. <laughs> but it's the out-breaths we want to make long. Number three is have... Soothing rituals, which uh, basically uh, tell the mind that we don't have to focus on that conversation. We can let go and relax and be present and let go of everything that's happened to us emotionally today. It's like a basically emotionally flushing the day <laughs> Um, down. And uh, people who are caretakers who work in industries where there's a lot of suffering really need to have soothing rituals. They're not indulgent. A soothing ritual is not the same thing as a, um, uh, an unskillful, uh, addiction. An addiction is, or, uh, you know, a an unskillful approach is something that where we try to get rid of a difficult experience, a difficult conversation, a situation that was very... uh, an emotional experience that was hard to hold. So sometimes when people work in very stressful industries, they're like, um, well, that's nothing that a couple beers won't take the edge off the day. (laughs) The day doesn't have an edge, by the way. And... uh, (laughs) And But drinking beer or shopping, okay, that was a hot week. There's a pair of shoes with my name on it. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the way to hold open and release emotions and feeling states. Uh, a soothing ritual, we don't get rid of emotional states. We just create a safe environment where we can open to what needs attention and then release it slowly and softly and gently and appropriately. So a soothing ritual might be like uh, going for a walk to our favorite neighborhood, sitting in the sun, sitting by the water, sitting in a park, taking a warm bath, drinking a warm cup of tea. Nobody ever regrets a soothing ritual. Nobody ever wakes up the next day and goes, Oh shit. <laughs> I did that, that that gentle yoga again. <laughs> I'm, I'm so screwed. Now I gotta call up my friends and ask them what I did after that gentle yoga. <laughs> did I get all, all yoga y on you? Did I really get in your face with that yoga shit yesterday? <laughs> Nobody ever says, does that. But we do wake up the next day and we're like, after tying went on, and we're like, okay, that strategy of drinking away the edge of the day didn't work out so well. So a soothing ritual is something that we always feel good about. You know, getting a massage from Chinatown, um, uh, getting a foot massage, getting... uh, Going, if you really like the Russian baths or sauna, or you like doing, uh, you like doing gentle exercise or going for a run. All these things are soothing. They can create a safe container where we can feel, but we don't go into the emotions. We don't become flooded, and we're bringing our awareness to the present. So the mind is no longer in that body condition. We're changing the body state when we're running or or doing gentle yoga or in a sauna or uh, sitting in a park bench. We're changing the body state so we're no longer in the mood that's creating the difficulty. So that's a very important strategy. Meditation, as a daily practice, can give us a way to sit and hold and open to. So after a difficult, painful Uh, interaction, we can sit and we can just hold the image of the other person and feel it and just feel their difficulty and wish them lasting peace, wish them metta, and then release them, breathe them out. That's a really wonderful ritual. You can combine self-soothing with that. You can go to a park, sit, relax, and then just bring up a conversation, feel the feelings, Bring Metta to yourself and to the other person. And finally, of course, it's important to have our own emotional outlets, people that we can go to. If you are only being the caretaker in life and are never being cared for, that is not good news. That's not sustainable. There is no such thing as a completely self-contained, self-reliant human being. That's another word for somebody who's suffering. We all need people in our lives that we can open to, that we can connect with. Recent uh, attachment studies show that the need for secure connections with other people where we can safely express, which is not, you know, verbally as we said, it's also emotionally allow ourselves to be vulnerable and express sadness or agitation. These every human being needs. So, the five things. Know those situations and relax the body and the breath. Note especially the front of the body, the stomach, shoulders, jaw, chest, relaxing those. Have a soothing ritual that is a way that we go and we flush the experience. We change the body shape. We change the environment, we get out of the house, we see different sites so that we're not in the same triggers. Meditate, have a safe container to hold the emotional states and find people with whom you can share the um, these uh, experiences. I do a lot of training for people who work in hospices and believe me, these people are very vulnerable to it, but if they do these processes, they can actually show up and be deeply, deeply, deeply profoundly useful human beings and at the same time have a rich, varied emotional life. So I thank you for listening. I hope there was something of value in there.